Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about the ways tech and innovation are making our world a better place. The internet is a marvelous invention. From your laptop or smartphone, you can speedily and for almost no cost access a huge portion of the totality of human knowledge. Want to learn how to fix your F-150's truck's carburetor? Well, there's a dozen videos of that. Want to read an out-of-print commentary on Plato's Republic? There's a website for that. Want to video chat with your cousin who's studying abroad in Japan? There's any number of free services that let you do that. It's never been easier for people also to find informed communities than it is today. If you're one of, I don't know, the, the several hundred people around the world obsessed with an out-of-date 80s cartoon, you can write and exchange fan fiction about it to your heart's content. We can form social ties around increasingly niche ideas from persecuted religious organizations to advocates for sexual equality to political protest movements. But there is a dark lining to that silver cloud. Those same tools can be used to form harmful antisocial identities. On platforms like Reddit and YouTube, 8chan, the host of online message boards, alienated young people, often young men, are building communities around hateful ideologies. Now, sometimes that hate spills out into real-world direct action, like the recent shootings in Gilroy, California and El Paso, Texas. Both shooters had posted to online fora just before their horrific acts. This is an appropriate time for us at Building Tomorrow, then, to discuss the rise of online radicalization, just how it works, and what our response as people who enjoy and appreciate technology should be. I have a special guest in the line today, journalist Timothy McLaughlin, who wrote a fascinating piece for Wired recently about the weird, dark history of 8chan. There'll be a link to the show notes so that you all can read it yourselves. Welcome to the show, Timothy. Yeah, sure. Thanks for thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So for our listeners who have very little familiarity with 8chan, I mean, those of us who are a little more digital natives have at least, you know, whether we've been there or not, we know how the system works. But for those who aren't familiar, what is 8chan? How does it function as a website? Uh, sure. So it's a um, message board or, or image board, rather, to be more specific, that's anonymous. That's a big part of, of it and a big part of the attraction uh, and perhaps the reason some of the content is the way it is that, uh, you know, people can use to uh, post, uh, you know, images, short messages. I think to most, maybe not to most, but to a lot of people who are used to kind of surfing the modern kind of web that's available to a lot of people, Facebook, Twitter, those kind of YouTube popular platforms, they would find HN and at least it's its parents to be quite you know rudimentary or stripped down much like a kind of forchan or almost kind of craigslist like like something from maybe the past internet age so you know that's kind of what the the appearance looks like or, or looked like before yeah so i think that's kind of the best way to, to visualize it i've never kind of logged on to the to the site before and it's full of as you say it's a you know like an image a lot of image image based message board sure lots of yeah. memes and and such percolate up out of 8chan yeah, and you know, there's a lot of, I guess, maybe one misconception would be that it's kind of just like one website. It's more a, yeah, I mean, it is one website, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are different boards covering different topics. And certainly there's ones that are more, you know, notorious than others. You know, there's boards that cover a wide variety of kind of topics and issues for people uh, to engage and debate and kind of chat about. So it's not, you know, some of the defenders of, uh, of HM would argue that, you know, it's not all the bad stuff that there are, you know, boards on there that are much more, I would say, perhaps civilized or, or 
or more, uh, you know, PC in their content. Right. There's a lot of, I mean, a lot of attention gets paid and, and uh, you know, arguably rightly so to the content, to the threads that are, or boards that are dedicated to, you know, racism, nativism, calls the violence, pornography, all that kind of thing. But that's not all that 8chan is. Can, can you give me maybe a little history of 8chan in a nutshell? Where does it come from? Who starts it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think the site was founded by a guy named Frederick Brennan, who was living in New York at the time when he started the, uh, he was working as a computer programmer and started the site kind of as a answer or spinoff to, to 4chan, another very popular image board that people are probably likely a bit more familiar with, gave rise to a lot of the memes that have made it into the public sphere and also the anonymous groups and things like that. And so, you know, Frederick, very interesting guy, and he was, I think, you know, frustrated with some of the content moderation that he saw from the administrator of 4chan back in 2013, or probably starting before that, he would say. And Christopher Poole, who served as the administrator of 4chan and the founder of the site. And so he wanted to start a place where he thought the conversations and the content could be uh, less restrained. And went about building 8chan. By his own admission, it wasn't an, an immediate success. It took a while for him to pull over, you know, users and to get people online. And a big uh, impetus for that or what, what kind of helped push people, users onto to HN was the Gamergate controversy that erupted back in 2014, you know, a very anti-female, I think we could say that fairly, movement in the, ga in the, in the gaming community. Christopher Poole, the administrator of 4chan, made a decision to ban the topic after it became, yeah, too toxic yeah, for the site. Um, and a lot of the users were looking for somewhere else to go at that time. And Frederick's site was sitting there. And uh, at the time, he was you know, more than happy to take them on uh, and to have them join his, uh, his message board. And I think uh, another thing that was perhaps worth noting is that he wanted you know, people to have a bit more control. Like He wanted to give people the ability to kind of start their own boards and originally have a bit more buy-in in the site, have a bit more control rather than have you know, administrator role, which he thought you know, Fortune had an administrator role that was probably too powerful. I mean, there is clearly some kind of online radicalization process that can happen in these spaces. I so you're doing most of your research for this piece before the recent shootings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Were you thinking about this radicalization process even before El Paso and Gilroy and, and, and the like? So I think, you know, what attracted to me to this was, um, you know, after the, you know, it was a site that I was kind of aware of in the back of my mind. Uh, and I had been doing a lot of reporting and writing on uh, the past year about other platforms, mostly Facebook, WhatsApp, a little bit about Google and YouTube, you know, about how they go about moderating and looking at content, how things get spread, you know, actions or mobilizations that can be uh, done, you know, through messaging platforms or through social media. And, uh, you know, HN is obviously wildly different from these kind of large multinational billion dollar corporations. So, uh, you know, I was interested in it because it was smaller, but uh, obviously also represents, you know, a much more kind of fringe and, and radical element. And so, you know, I started, I guess I got 
really interested in it. Started talking to Frederick and making trips to the Philippines uh, right after the right after the New Zealand shooting, which had some some links to the site and also. You know, the, the the shooter posted on there kind of got cheered on and things like that. But I would say that those, again, represent kind of the most extreme version of that. But you know, there, there's extreme things. You know, you look at reporters being harassed who for a long time, if you wrote about HN, you kind of had a target on your back. Um, I talked to reporters who had been doxxed um, by people whose parents had had their identity stolen, their bank accounts wiped out. FBI agents had to be stationed outside their houses. Video game designers or, or people in the gaming community, especially females, getting tons of you know rape threats. Again, a lot of doxing. The real world things that come out of these sites, you know, the shooting is the most extreme end of it. But there's a lot of bad stuff in the middle as well. A lot of people have had really um, you know terrible experiences with uh you know with users of, of these types of sites yeah there's you, you quote the latrobe university scholar at one point in that article saying that quote being mean to each other is just part of operating on 4chan and that's 4chan let alone the more you know kind of extreme 8chan there's the, a, a toxicity that is kind of baked into the community for uh, whatever reason now do you see is is that kind of toxicity inherent to the space as a whole, like like kind of how anonymous comment sections on websites just naturally attract trolls and bad faith actors, or is it the function of the particular culture of those sites? Which I guess is a way of asking: Are there non toxic versions of eight chan and the four chan? And, and um, have you seen evidence that these are in particular problematic anonymized um, kind of open message boards? You know, I think there's degrees of all this, but I'll, I'll share an anecdote. You know, that uh, I heard from researchers that also heard from from Frederick, is that a belief amongst a lot of users and amongst Frederick himself for a long time was that people using the site. You know, he believed that, uh, and like I said, researchers who have uh, talked to a lot of uh, predominantly 4 users, um, you know, hear this idea of like kind of strips the mask away from people, so they don't need to act. Uh, in a kind of politically correct way, and a lot of them feel that if anyone sat down behind a computer and kind of became really engaged and started using the site, they would say the kind of stuff, the really kind of offensive things that we see posted on there, that it kind of strips away a, a mask, I guess, that people wear in everyday life. So It's a know, really that's, grim that's view of, of human nature, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, that's certainly kind of one one way of you know of of looking at it, and, and certainly one people one way people think about it, in terms of the message board systems. Otherwise, you know, I think there are communities and online platforms that are less certainly less problematic. You know, I think people would point to Reddit as like a uh, kind of non image board, but uh, you know, perhaps a similar. Uh, not again, not exactly the same, uh, but something kind of in that vein that that's less problematic. You know, I'm covering protests in Hong Kong at the moment. There's a message board here that's been instrumental, kind of organizing protests and bringing out people out to the street. So, you know, I think there are um, sites out there. Again, I think it's degrees of of all this stuff um, and kind of the user base and who gets drawn drawn to uh, to the platforms. For this next segment, I'm joined in the studio by Matthew Feeney and Will Duffield. Now, Matthew, sadly, it wasn't all that long ago that you and I recorded an episode in response to the Christchurch shootings in New Zealand. Are there any connections we can draw between that event and the recent shootings in the U.S.? 
Good question. I think uh, when you look at these two events, they're they're both, of course, uh, mass shootings and both perpetrated by people who published manifestos uh, on on their their complaints, right? Outlining a series of grievances. Uh, They both seem to share similar themes, namely concern about ethnic replacement, as they put it, and also concern about the environment and what all this... uh, what, what the impact of immigration on uh, what they perceive as the West, but it goes beyond. I think just the just the incident and the motivation per se. Uh, we've predictably seen in the wake of the most recent shootings, as we saw in the wake of the Christchurch shooting, discussions about content moderation, how social media sites and uh, even other. Uh, forms for exchange, how they should be regulated. I think this is a, a natural reaction in the wake of something so horrific. People always look back in time and think, well, wasn't this predictable? Look at uh, the, the, these people's behavior. Uh, and, and for reasons I'm sure we'll get into, I think that's not necessarily the the correct approach. And I think there might have been in the El Paso Manifesto an explicit call out to Christchurch. Am I right about that? I believe that's right. Yeah. Yes. He referenced uh, the Christchurch shooters, the great replacement manifesto in in his um and in many cases these folks are participating in if not the same but similar online communities they're consuming similar media to one another um surrounding these these topics and concerns and they they fit into a broader movement in a sense of international nationalists mm-hmm. um i think ironically in a sense they tend not to be particularly rooted in whatever communities they're purportedly trying to save or defend. Um, well, it's like you had um, – if El Paso cites the Christchurch shooter who cited or referenced in his manifesto the Anders Breivik, the Norwegian shooter. So like to your point, an internationalist, nationalist movement in the well, and, and beyond their, their manifestos, the kind of written – justifications they lay out for the horrible things they've done. Uh, going back to Brevik and and mass shooters before him, they're following an aesthetic script there. They're carrying out very similar styles of attacks. They're looking for publicity in similar ways with this sort of manifesto posting. Um, so I think it it goes beyond just the ideas behind it, but how they seek to be perceived, how they hope to place themselves as, as warriors in a way. Um, and that might account for some of the, the use of firearms as well, the aesthetics of the attack. Yeah, you'll, you'll hear, um, hear these sorts of attacks described as stochastic terrorism um, or the use of mass communication to incite random act actors to carry out violence or terrorist acts that are statistically predictable. They track the rhetoric you're hearing, the sorts of things these communities are discussing, but individually unpredictable. You don't know who's consuming what, what message precisely or how how someone will react to a given message and therefore when they might decide to to carry out an attack like this. it leads to a kind of this lone wolf is often the term the media likes because it's a lot more uh, – because it's a lot sexier than saying stochastic terrorism. <laughs> but the, this lone wolf shooter, someone who's not really plugged into a formal organization network um, but carries out these acts of violence anyways. And, and feels as though while they are acting individually, that they're acting on behalf of a broader cause. It's yeah. not someone who sees themselves as individually deciding to go out and do this but – merely 
one um one soldier within a a broader distributed movement i think that gets to your alienation point at the beginning which is namely that uh, although these kind of incidents happen all over the world in separate places it seems that to a segment of the community that pays attention to where these manifestos and commentary are posted and discussed that they nonetheless feel part of something uh, important uh, and uh, that's something i think we're still trying to get to grips with you know decades after the emergence of uh the internet as we know it. Well, I, I think um, with regard to many of these manifestos and this sentiment, we've seen it linked to 4chan and particularly 8chan slash poll board. Mm -hmm. um, and over the past decade, I would say these image boards um, have, while they originally used a lot of or Nazi rhetoric, fascist rhetoric, along with gore and pornography was seen as a means of maintaining barriers to entry. Over time, that allow, while it might keep the normies out, it means that the actual Nazis, the, the, those who unironically celebrate this kind of content had a safe harbor and, and could really build a community within that space without raising red flags or facing censure from other community members because you could simply respond that it was all for the lulls. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's like a protective shield that that kind of goes with the chan's uh, their community, the way they the, the culture. Well, historically, yeah, there was a they tried to keep the the normies out um, and and use this really sort of outwardly vile culture to do so to put people off who who weren't willing to tolerate that. And what role does so? Can we argue that there is a particular role for the internet uh, that makes this kind of stochastic terrorism possible, which would make it much harder to imagine in a previous era of uh, you know our anarchist bombers or the like? What is it about the internet that makes this possible? It's cheap communication. Mm. Um, these people and and discovery discovery costs have been lowered as well. So not only can you find like-minded individuals more easily, you can also speak with them more easily. Um, and people may come across this sort of content for the first time on, on places like 4chan or 8chan or move there from more traditional channels. But when you see uh, the sort of most worrying communities, real avowed young neo-Nazis, um, they're communicating for the most part in in private, outside of explicit recruiting. Um, their conversations are occurring on Discord, on private forums like Iron March, in encrypted messaging apps, um, and, and less so in public within, say, 8chan. That's more of a vector to those more niche um, committed platforms. There is that, I think, Will's point uh, raises something worth pondering, right? Which is uh, that that you you get the opportunity to form a community in the way you just didn't years and years ago. And, and Paul started this conversation discussing the fact that it's easy for people to find people with like-minded interests and all the rest of it. So if I like, uh, I don't know, certain certain board games or I like certain music, it's impossible to find like-minded interests. But this 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 culture that we've been describing is is. Uh, 
I suppose, fascinating in the most horrible way possible. <laughs> it has this uh, very particular kind of aesthetic to it. It's got its own emergent literature. It has its own uh, slang. It has uh, it's 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 much more than just a simple exchange of a, a, a tip on how to play something or how to make something. It's it's much broader than that. And this is the kind of thing that uh, I think really freaks people out about this sort of thing is that it's not just uh, a typical kind of forum or exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I you're seeing a, a class of Amazon self-published books by folks popular within this movement, and while they might not all be, you know, Nazi tracts, they're speaking to a, a commonly felt alienation within this this cohort. Something that just occurred to me: one of the points that I want to explore a little is uh, that that how much of the the alienation is also a product of other. Uh, recent innovation. So it, social media, for it, it seems to me, is is an amazing ecosystem. Whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, even YouTube, I'd argue to a certain extent. But what's what's really interesting about all those platforms is that they tend to be places where your peers will publish good news, right? If you want, yeah, like, yeah. so the graduations, the the job promotion, the birth of a new child, getting married. It's it's not actually a reflection of of real life in any sense. And if if you feel like you're one of these alienated people, those platforms, I imagine, could be quite depressing in the sense that, well, yeah. everyone I went to high school with went to decent colleges and they're getting jobs or, you know, and my, my sisters got married and but you know, all these, uh, the constant barrage of all the good news that Facebook in particular gives you. Uh, and what, what's interesting is I think, uh, not that I'm an expert in these um, forums at all, but but HN and 4chan don't seem to be competing with that, right? It's a, it's a totally different uh, kind of content that people are uh, posting and trying to consume. And it's a real problem, I think, for people of our political persuasion, given uh, the the Great Recession and uh, the impact that had on many people in this country as well. Uh, if, if the cost of like serious economic depression is that a lot of these people feel uh, totally left out of um, the economic recovery, uh, is, is the sort of stuff that we've seen just part of the cost that we're going to have a generation of uh, young pissed off men? I mean, that's a rather gloomy outlook. Also, when you look at how figures like either Tarrant or um, Elliot Rogers, um, the the incel uh, Santa Monica attacker you mentioned, how they are turned into memes and essentially deified within their respective communities and similarities in how their manifestos were have been shared since their death and, and inspire others. Um, just as the uh, Texas shooter mentioned uh, Tarrant in his uh, manifesto, um, you saw a incel attacker in Toronto, Canada, yeah. yes, um, reference Elliot Roger in um, as as he carried out his attack. Um, so I, I think in terms of that, how information is shared, how these memes spread. Um, you see a lot of similarities there. All across all these movements, across our Adam Waffen neo Nazis, uh, uh, incels, uh, white nationalists, um, you know, for whatever the particular ideological covering um, or cover might not be the right word, but whatever radical ideology these uh, young, often men, adopt, um, it's led to things that harm others, right? Like we, these shootings are now. Uh, 
just a, a recurrent event. I mean, I, at this point, we expect some certain base level of uh, of mass shootings every year from online radicalized shooters. Um, this has led to lots of calls for someone to do something and the willingness to imagine everything from you know corporate mo- more corporate moderation of their websites to outright government censorship. So let's dig into that a little bit um, here at the end. Um, I think, Matthew, you mentioned that Trump recently called for some kind of information sharing between government agencies and social media platforms. Trump is keen for the Department of Justice to work with uh, social media sites to uh, build tools uh, or to, to take steps that would help identify these mass shooters before they commit their atrocities. There are a number of issues with this. Uh, one is uh, Facebook in particular is under um, – Intense pressure to not conduct surveillance on its users, having come uh, been on the receiving end of a multi-billion-dollar FTC slap, uh, which involved you know them taking certain commitments for, on privacy protection, and indeed uh, Facebook isn't alone when it comes to uh, anti-surveillance, at least public sentiment. Uh, Twitter as well uh, doesn't exactly uh, well, it tries to make sure that you know its its users uh, data isn't used for surveillance. Uh, but more more worryingly, uh, I should of course add that you know the FBI uh, does not need like Facebook's permission uh, to engage in surveillance of Facebook users, although cooperation would make that easier. But more to the point is a, a, a difficult. Frustrating social challenge uh, for all of us, I think, is that uh, these young men who commit these atrocities uh, don't fit into a very predictive mold. And what what kind of mold you can try and frame applies to millions of people in this country. So uh, this country is full of young, pissed off men, uh, millions of them. Uh, They use social media and these websites and they post uh, they post horrible things that could be interpreted as jokes. They post photos of their firearms. They make racist comments. I mean, this is uh, and the worry with the kind of cooperation that I see with the administration urging there to be law enforcement and private sector cooperation on this is that the private sector will feel under pressure to cooperate and to at least offer the FBI or DOJ something. Uh, and we should just expect massive false positives if this happens. There'll be thousands of teenagers and young men reported by friends or their parents parents to law enforcement, and I, I, I worry that that won't. I, I think as well when, when we look to other models of, of combating online radicalization, um, when we look to what has been done with regard to the threat of ISIS and concerns about young men consuming ISIS propaganda on social media platforms and then going to join or or support the group, um, we see tremendous false positive rates. Um, and we aren't just talking about young men swept up by the FBI who, who looked like they fit a profile, um, but other sorts of content, people trying to record atrocities, keep records of atrocities in Syria. Um, other researchers simply doc- documenting the conflict, the sorts of propaganda used by these groups, um, and those discussing theology in Arab language forums more generally. Now, because these are American tech firms, this was a Western-led effort to counter radicalization, and most of the people that these firms listen to 
um, their their constituencies, either in Washington or prominent users, are not Arab language users, then we were willing to tolerate a really high false positive rate in terms of the removal of other um, completely innocuous Arab language content, which if applied to this kind of thing, um, yeah. rude memes in the United States, it really would be yeah. more broadly unacceptable. Looking at what we've done with ISIS means maybe we should tone down that effort in terms of speech suppression, not that we ought to apply that model more widely. I saw recently, uh, I didn't read into it, but certainly something that came across my social media radar was pushback against uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, who recently talked about, well, maybe we should have a countering violent extremism model for white nationalist or white supremacist. And uh, our, our colleague Patrick Eddington has written before about what a disaster that that approach had for Muslim Americans. Uh, the, the, it's a double pronged risk. One is like the massive like false positives and inefficiency. But the second is, is as we alluded to earlier, the martyrdom of people uh, who feel empowered because they are now the target of this. I just think it's a, it's a mess. And there's kind of an emergent, emerging bipartisan consensus around the issue because like Pete Buttigieg, but also David French just called the National Review for, hey, we, we should use all these tools, these wonderful, delightful surveillance and uh, tools we've developed for countering Islamic radicalism to white supremacy to these communities. So it's which is worrisome because you can see the overtone window shifting on both left and right uh, and openness to this kind of surveillance. Mm -hmm. um, uh, something else that came to mind was um, it feels like we've learned nothing from the whole uh, FOSTA-SESTA sex trafficking imbroglio. So, you know, the when the government, when Congress punctured a hole in Section 230, uh, protections, which we talked about Section 230 in a previous episode. Well, they wanted to go after sex traffickers, and but they had a false positive issue in a sense. But what ended up happening was a lot of these online personal ads um, forums just shut down entirely. Mo most people affected were not actual sex traffickers. It was prostitutes. They weren't trying to go after prostitutes, but they ended up doing was pushing a lot of prostitutes out into the street, making their lives more dangerous. Um, but then also it's made it harder for law enforcement to do their job, harder for them to track actual sex traffickers. And there's been Mike Masnick at TechDirt's done a lot of reporting on this. So the same thing could apply here. If you do somehow manage to shut down these fora um, for you know young white ethno-nationalists, um, there's no guarantee. I mean, you could actually stymie your efforts to track what's going on, to you know, watch for manifestos so you can predict someone who might be likely to actually commit a shooting, et cetera. Well, it, it gets a little beyond that, though, because I mean, what it means to shut down one of these things is not so clear cut. Uh, it's it's uh, the FBI is a powerful institution, but it can't shut down any website it wants to, uh, and uh, it's not that difficult to figure out a, a situation in which a lot of these fora just move uh, move around to corners of the internet that the FBI can certainly reach but can't shut down. Yeah. And uh, that's a jurisdictional issue, but uh, as well as a technological one. I, mean, I think it will just become totally infeasible for the FBI to really prompt the purge of all of this content. I think in terms of what productive steps can be taken, uh, especially on the private side, we can well, we can look back to kind of the, the original model of this kind of disgruntled attacker um, going to, to ancient Greece and Heterostratus, um, a fellow who burned down the 
Temple of Artemis to become famous, um, to draw attention to himself. He couldn't succeed otherwise and he took it out on, on his community um, and they passed a, a law. I'm not suggesting a law here but a practice, um, Damnatio Memore, um, prohibiting any, any discussion of him, the using of his name um, and obviously that, that failed because I'm invoking him now but um, <laughs> more broadly when we look at these folks trying to go out in a blaze of glory, trying to put their name in, in the headlines. Yeah. We don't need to put their name up there. We don't need to contribute to a sense of accomplishment that their vile community may uh, yeah. provide for them or, or attempt to read into this. The more we build these people up as, as dangerous, feared actors rather than say the attempted shooter in Oslo the other day who got cold clocked by some 70-year-old man um, and was dragged into court with two black eyes, um, the, the more these folks can be portrayed as, as foolish and kind of in, incompetent, blundering, purposeless um, rather than the dangerous vanguard of the neo-Nazi world order. Um, the fewer young men will see value and, and meaning in following them. So two points here. Um, one, I mean, there's this large body of social science literature which links the rise of mass shootings in general, not just like you know online Nazis, the rise of mass shootings in general, not to the rise of the internet, but to the rise of 24-7 cable news coverage, the attention they get. And there's a one-upsmanship to get the biggest body count. That's why here we, we've generally avoided saying the names. It's just the El Paso shooter and uh, – and like ah, no, 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 one mentioned, but I mean, but in general, I think media sites are becoming more savvy to that, not always using their name, not emphasizing the the body counts, um, et cetera. Um, so one point, I think that's that's well pit, uh, well put. But to the other point, like if it's a framing, these are sexually frustrated, alienated, confused young men. That's a lot more pitiful seeming than heroic crusader for. You know, some vague notion of Western civilization like Anders Breivik uh, or, uh, you know, wanted to be framed as. Or I'm thinking here of the, I don't know if you saw the British movie, I think it was called Four Lions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, excellent film. Excellent film. But the whole point of the film is to make that same point. Like you think four lions, brave, bold, you know, lions. But the whole point of the movie is showing how bumbling and idiotic and even in the, the, the leader of the group, how just confused they are. The regrets they have, um, that's the impression we should take away from. So as we like, I don't think the answer is not to discuss the fact that this online radicalization is happening. Uh, it should never be mentioned. We should talk about it, but realize what we're actually describing here. This is a these are people who should be pitied. And there should be efforts that are, are a number of organizations that are, I think, admirable uh, for former radicals, both from left and right, that reach out to former white supremacists, trying to say, hey, look, I used to be one of you. Here's my gang tattoo, um, my you know swastika. But like this is a dead end. You can make better choices than I did when I was your age or vice versa. You know, there's there's similar outreach groups for radical Muslims, especially in, in Britain. Um, that's, I think, the approach we should take as a society. Well, thank you guys for coming in and having that conversation. It's important that we talk about online radicalization. It's something that libertarians have, I think. Uh, insight into how these communities are formed, but then also an important cautionary tale for what shouldn't be done in response to them. Um, 
And for our listeners, until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.